Great, thank you, Becky. That's really good. Uh, you keep that open in front of you. We're going to be looking at, uh, well, across the book of uh, Joel this evening. Uh, we're in a series uh, looking at each of the prophets, well, some of the prophets at least anyway, and trying to tackle a prophet in an evening. So we've done a, done a few of them and we're going to look at Joel uh, tonight. May I pray for us as we uh, come to, uh, to look at the prophet Joel. That wonderful uh, promise there from the Lord, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Lord God, we thank you that we know that is true of you. This is true for uh, the people of Israel uh, in Joel's day, as it's true of you today. Uh, We pray now for your grace, your grace to us to understand your word, uh, that we might know you better and serve you uh, as, as well as we might by your Spirit's help. Amen. Uh, on Thursday, the 11th of April, 1912, so over 100 years ago, a ship set sail. It's the world's largest ocean liner, left port on a maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, she was billed as unsinkable by her owners and by the, uh, the crew. Uh, because they thought she was unsinkable, they shrugged off all the warnings about icebergs and all kinds of calamities like that that would never affect them, of course. And yet, four days later, she was at the bottom of the ocean where she is today. Over 1,500 people died. Of course, it's talking about uh, the Titanic, a uh, story probably well known to many of us, even if we've uh, seen the, the film. Uh, Kate and Leo weren't on the ship, as far as I know. Uh, but, uh, but there we go, that's one interpretation of it. Uh, the complacency of the Titanic's owners and crew was tragically exposed. They were complacent. They assumed that nothing could uh, befall their ship, that there was nothing to worry about. Uh, they could steam on regardless. They were unsinkable. Uh, and that, those twin themes, those twin themes of complacency and crisis are two themes that really are right at the heart uh, of the prophet Joel's book. Uh, the situation is this. Um, a natural disaster has uh, f- befallen Israel. Uh, she as a nation is in dire straits. And alongside this crisis, uh, the people have grown complacent. Uh, They've expected God to judge all the rest of the world that they see as not having followed him properly. And they expect him just to kind of pour his blessing on them regardless. They've grown complacent. And because of that, they've sort of grown away from the Lord. They've uh, they've drifted away from him. Their hearts have grown cold. Uh, They've lost their first love, we might say. Uh, And Joel's message is to confront them. To confront that issue of complacency, and to call them back to the Lord, who they've rejected, who loves them, and who wants them to be his people. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's what we're going to have a look at uh, this evening. Uh, Joel is, uh, is quite helpful. It divides very neatly into uh, two halves. So I suggest we look at each half uh, in turn. I want to start with the first half, which I think is roughly from the start of chapter 1 uh, through to verse 17 of chapter 2. Uh, and I've given it the, the sort of the title or the description of uh, Joel gives a warning to repent. A warning to repent. Well, I said that the, uh, the people of Israel were facing a crisis. And you might think, well, what is this crisis? Well, verse 4 
uh, tells us something about it. Uh, There is a plague of locusts that has come and has ravaged uh, the land of Israel. It's left it completely bare and without enough food to either mean that they can make offerings uh, to God. So you can see that in in verse 9. Grain offerings and drink offerings cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Uh, But even worse than that, they can't even make offerings to God. They can't even feed themselves. Uh, they, uh, they are completely uh, ruined. The fields are ruined, verse 10. The ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed. It's pretty bad. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Uh, they're in famine. The nation has come to a complete uh, standstill, essentially. Uh, Joel's description tells us that this was a pretty uh, unusual event. Uh, this wasn't something that happened regularly to God's people. This is a pretty extreme event, uh, really, it's unparalleled in the history of, of Israel. Verse 2, he says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Uh, this is unparalleled in the history of Israel. Uh, this is an event that is going to be remembered for years and years to come. I wonder if we get a sense of that, don't we, from uh, sometimes when people look back in the, the past. My grandparents always talk about the winter of 1963, as being that uh, you know sort of a, a winter that they remember is horrible winter that's never been uh, never been worse since. Uh, it's one of those kind of memories. Uh, there's times which sticks in the uh, in the memory and it goes down the generations and everything gets compared to it. And I suppose this is probably a, a similar sort of event, uh, but I guess worse than that because the people uh, are uh, are starving essentially. Uh, throughout sort of biblical history, d- different people have, have have tried to work out exactly what Joel is describing here. Uh, so he describes it as a plague of locusts, uh, but some people have suggested that actually he's talking kind of picture language. And it's what he's really describing is a, a picture of invading armies coming and laying waste to the land. Uh, so if you look in verse 4, there's this slightly kind of puzzling description of these different types of locusts who come. It seems like he sort of describes kind of waves of locusts, and lots of scholars have kind of gone into details and tried to work out which invading armies this might be and all that sort of thing. Uh, I have to say I'm a little bit unconvinced by it. I don't think it really matters actually too much, but I'm a little bit unconvinced for what it's worth. Uh, I don't think Joel gives us a hint that he's talking in picture language. I think he's describing something that, uh, that, that, is, that is real and that actually happened. Uh, what he describes actually is very consistent with what uh, we know uh, can happen when locusts attack. I was doing a bit of digging uh, this week and funny about this, and I, I uncovered an article from National Geographic magazine. I don't know if you, any of you read that. I found it online. Uh, it describes a locust attack on Palestine uh, in uh, 1915, so 100, 100 years ago. And apparently the descriptions of that said that the locusts were so bad they completely blotted out the sun, caused a complete eclipse, uh, and the locusts devoured the land at a rate of over 600 square feet a day. Completely left it bare. And there was a similar kind of crisis that happened. People were starving and they had to uh, kind of get in food from, from other sources. Uh, and you can start to, to get a picture, can't you, when you, you hear those kind of descriptions, especially in an agrarian culture like Israel, everyone's dependent on the land. This is something really, really serious. It's not a couple of wasps turning up and they're making a bit of a meal and a song and dance about it. This is a serious business. They are in crisis. John's focus isn't really on the natural disaster, as it were. Uh, He wants to go a bit deeper. Uh, He's really interested in how this crisis exposes what's going on in the hearts of God's people. Uh, Really, it exposes that they're pretty shallow. Uh, Their relationship with God has grown complacent 
and cold. They've neglected to watch their steps, they've fallen into, uh, into sin, uh, and they've grown cold in their hearts. And that's why Joel, instead of sort of uh, crying out and, and calling for, uh, talking about um, strategies for famine relief, instead calls the elders and the people to return to the Lord their God for a season of national repentance. So if we kind of read on in chapter 1, you've got a title there, I guess, if you're following it in the Pew Bibles, so the NIV translators have put that in. A call to repentance in verse 13. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Uh, come send the night in sack, sackcloth. Uh, verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders uh, and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out uh, to the Lord. Uh, Joel calls on the people to return to the Lord, to plead with him uh, for deliverance. At different times in our country's history, we've had uh, sort of similar kind of episodes. I think the last one was back in the Second World War when uh, our country was in crisis uh, facing uh, prospect of invasion by Nazi Germany, and the king, King George, uh, urged the people to have a day of National Day of Prayer and repentance as they called uh, on the Lord. And I guess it's a kind of similar, uh, similar idea. But why is Joel so urgent? Uh, verse 15 tells us why there is this sense of urgency. He says this, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. Alan's read uh, from uh, our Lord's words in Luke's Gospel. Uh, and this theme of the day of the Lord is one that Joel's going to return to again and again. It's, it's kind of the, the, a, a big theme in, in Joel's uh, writings. Uh, what does he mean by the day of the Lord? What's he, what he talking about? Oh, well, the day of the Lord uh, is, is something that comes throughout, actually, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it is, I suppose, that we could define it as the day when God's righteous judgment... Uh, will be fully revealed. Uh, the day when God's righteous judgments will be fully revealed. Uh, there's differing kind of interpretations about what that really means. Uh, so some passages in the Old Testament uh, suggest that it's going to be a day of judgment largely for God's enemies and his people's enemies. So uh, bits of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 34, talks in that kind of sense. It's a day of judgment uh, for God's enemies. And yet there are other passages that actually read alongside that imply that it will also be a day of judgment for God's people, for Israel as well. Uh, so Amos chapter 5, if you want to go and look that up later, that would be a good example of that. So there's this kind of twin interpretation, I guess, of what the day of the Lord means. It will be a day of judgment, yes. Uh, yes, primarily, I guess, for God's enemies, but in some sense also uh, potentially for God's people as well. And this seems to be Joel's meaning. Uh, the day of the Lord is fast approaching, and it's going to be a terrible day, he says, for Israel, for the people of God, and for the nations. Uh, if they think they've got it bad now with the locusts, they should just wait until the Lord comes. It's a foretaste of something far, uh, far greater to come. And judgment starts with the people of God, says Joel. Well, even before that, uh, Joel says that things are going to get a lot worse than that. Uh, read on in chapter 2, uh, first 11 verses, uh, tell us a little bit more about what's going to happen. Uh, Joel says there's going to be an invading army uh, that's approaching, uh, from whom nothing will escape, uh, verse 3. Uh, we can sort of surmise that this is a reference to Babylon, the Babylonians coming and, uh, and ravaging uh, the land and destroying everything. And yet again, Joel uh, again says, come on, repent, 
uh, come back to the Lord. And this time he gives a, a call directly uh, from the Lord himself, and that's the bit we, uh, we were focusing on. Verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. What a wonderful description of our God, isn't it? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Even now, declares the Lord, even though you've turned away from me, even though you've proved unfaithful, come on, come back to me. I'll have you back, he says. Even at this late stage, God calls his people to come back to him, to turn wholeheartedly from the ways of wickedness and to return to him. He never takes pleasure in judgment. He longs for his people to return to him. And when they do... He promises that he will relent, end of verse 13. He relents from sending uh, calamity. I don't know what you make of this picture of God. I guess, I guess a very few of us like to think of God as a God of judgment. I personally find it quite uncomfortable. I'd much rather think of God as a God of, uh, I guess a God of love, who's uh, he's all, he's all sort of smiling and it's all nice. Uh, but I think if we're being fair to the scriptures, we can't do that. Yes, God is a God of love, but with that, in his love, he is also a God of judgment. Uh, one theologian uh, described this in pretty stinging terms. This is what he said many church, too many churches really have ended up believing and preaching. It's a pretty stinging assessment. He said that so many churches believe in this. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. Essentially what he's saying is they've sanitised the message of the Bible. Uh, they've turned God into the God of their own image. They want to get rid of the bits that they find a bit unpalatable and just go with the bit they like. happens in our own day. Uh, if you read through the, uh, the lectionary that so many churches in the Church of England use, uh, quite often you will find that the uh, bits uh, that are set for reading have been sanitised. They cut the bits out that they uh, speak of judgment, but they don't like. Uh, instinctively, something in us uh, turns away from this idea that God can be a God of judgment. And yet we can't escape from that truth. Yes, God is a God who loves us. He is gracious, he's compassionate, slow to anger. Yes, of course he is. But at the same time, if he is loving, he must also uh, judge those who've rejected him. He can't overlook sin and rebellion. And his judgment, says the Bible, starts at the door of his house. It starts with those who claim to be his people. And it's always been so. You read through scripture and you see it again and again. Perhaps probably the most famous examples is in the book of Revelation. Right at the very start of the last book of the Bible, uh, we're given these seven letters to the churches across the Mediterranean. Uh, There's lots of things in those those letters. Uh, But actually, largely, they are in part, at least, threats of judgment to churches, to people who claim to be God's people and yet have grown complacent and disobedient. So it's pretty uncomfortable to to read these things. Uh, And if we want God to turn the spotlight on others, we must be prepared first for it to turn on us and to expose uh, things that are not good in our lives. And still, the wonder of it all is verse 13, isn't it? Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding uh, in love. Uh, God does not wish to condemn us, but to save us. And he's made it possible by the death of his son. If we'll turn from sin 
uh, turn to him because of the Lord Jesus who died in our place. That's possible. But we have to turn and we have to repent. So that's Joel's first uh, word to the people of Israel. It's a warning uh, to repent, a warning to repent. Well, let's look, shall we, at the second half of, uh, of, the le- of uh, Joel's, uh, Joel's prophecy. And, and I've given this the title of a word of restoration. As we had a, a warning to repent, we've got a word of restoration in the second half. And, uh, and verse 18 of chapter 2 is really the hinge on which uh, Joel's prophecy swings. Uh, it seems, from what we can tell, uh, that God's people listened to the warning that Joel brought them, and uh, they returned to the Lord's. Uh, and from this point on, Joel starts to uh, outline uh, God's promises of restoration and blessing to them. Uh, it has been pretty gloomy so far, and there's still some gloom to come, I'm afraid. I can't uh, completely uh, pretend there isn't. But it's definitely uh, a lot more uh, hopeful uh, than it seemed, uh, seemed before. Uh, what does uh, Joel, uh, God promise here? Well, I, I think roughly we can see there are three promises that God gives uh, his people in this second half of Joel. Uh, firstly, God promises uh, in this second half that those who call on him uh, will experience blessing and not cursing. Blessing and not cursing. And you can see that especially from uh, verse 18 onwards of um, chapter 2, uh, if you're with me. Uh, God uh, says this, the Lord will be jealous uh, for his land. He'll take pity uh, on his people. And what, do, what has he taken pity? Well, we can see from uh, what he says uh, he's answered their prayers for the harvest, verse 19. I'm sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you uh, fully. Uh, he's going to drive away the, the armies from them. They don't have to fear uh, that they'll be uh, attacked again, verse 20. I'll drive the Norman army away, northern army away from you, pushing it into parched barren land. A uh, sense of, uh, of, of security. Uh, even more than that, uh, God promises that he will repay them for the years that the locusts have taken away. Uh, Verse 25. I'll repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Uh, And all the locusts, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the locust swarm. Uh, God will completely uh, restore uh, the situation. In fact, more than he will restore, actually he's going to make things better uh, than they were before. Uh, Why? Because actually God says they're going to have food in abundance. uh, And they'll know him in a way that they never knew him. Uh, before. Isn't that always the way of God? God's mercy to us. He always gives us more, doesn't he? He doesn't just turn the clock back to what it was before, but he gives us more than that. He always does that, and it's so true uh, here. Uh, But they will know God in a way that they've never done before, that there really is no other God, no other God to worship, no other God uh, to follow. Uh, Well, this is going to happen, says Joel, uh, because God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. Uh, on all people. And I guess if you knew anything from the book of Joel, this is probably the passage uh, that I suspect uh, you know. Uh, this promise that God is going to pour out the Holy Spirit on all people, uh, that they'll know him in a new and deeper uh, way. I think when I was growing up for a long time, I, I kind of assumed that the Holy Spirit was really only a New Testament thing. Uh, so often we can kind of give that impression, can't we, that the Holy Spirit turns up in the New Testament and he's at work today. Uh, but he, uh, it, we can sometimes think that he was never really at work before and almost, maybe perhaps he never almost existed. Uh, and that's completely false. That isn't true. Uh, we read through the Bible and we can see that the Holy Spirit was at work uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit harder to spot, but he's always there. Uh, in general, his work was like this. Uh, he came upon particular people 
at particular times for particular tasks. Uh, So there's a sense in which when somebody in the Bible has a big task to do, uh, very often uh, God fills them with the Spirit to enable them uh, to carry out that task. Uh, There is a sense in which it's kind of, I suppose, almost limited in some ways. Uh, It's particular people, particular times, at particular tasks. Uh, And Joel promises that in time to come, in in these last days, uh, when when the Lord Jesus has come, uh, there's something going to be very different about that. Uh, that the, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to rest on all kinds of people, not just uh, a few sort of special people, as it were, uh, but all kinds of people. Uh, more than that, there's going to be uh, dramatic uh, manifestations uh, in prophecy uh, and in wonders, so verse 28. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. Uh, I will show wonders in the heavens, verse 30, and on the earth. Uh, there'll be amazing things uh, happening. Uh, and this is all heralding the day when the Lord uh, will return. Uh, for some, that day will be a dreadful day, says Joel, verse 31. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. And yet, he says, for those who call on the name of the Lord, it'll be a day of deliverance, won't it? Verse 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. Uh, we can read this with hindsight. We are in a position that Joel's, uh, Joel's hearers would never have known. We can read it and we read uh, Acts chapter 2 and we can see uh, this happening on the day, the birthday of the church uh, at Pentecost when the Spirit fell. And the Apostle Peter used this prophecy as uh, a way of explaining to the, uh, the crowd what was going on. And we can know it's true that in our lives as well, can't we? Uh, for all of us who have called on his name, Uh, we are saved. Uh, We have the Lord's Spirit living inside us to equip us to live for him day by day and to declare his name. And yes, as we look to that day when the Lord Jesus will return, uh, we can be confident. We can look forward to it as a day of deliverance. Our redemption is drawing near. There will be deliverance, as the Lord uh, has said. Great day to look forward to. But there is that sense from Joel that whilst it is a great day for the people of God, for those who are not in the people of God, it will be a pretty terrible day. And verse, uh, verse 1 and following from chapter 3 gives us uh, that sense. Uh, people will find themselves, all of us will find ourselves in the valley of decision, as Joel calls it. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Uh, I guess each of us make decisions every day, don't we? Sometimes they're pretty trivial, such as what clothes to, to wear. Sometimes they're a bit, more, uh, a bit more important. Maybe it's what job we'll do or who we'll marry. Uh, one preacher put it like this. We make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. <laughs> we make our decisions, and then our decisions uh, make us. And Joel says that the day of the Lord is a day when God will make a decision about our decisions. (laughs) He will come back and he will make a decision. The valley of decision is a time when he will make a decision on how we have decided about him. Joel describes him in graphic terms, judging the nations in this valley of decision, at least in part on how they have treated the people of God, verse Two, uh, Joel records, this is the words of God. I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, same place. 
There I will enter into judgment against them. Concerning my inheritance, my people, uh, Israel. God promises that he will return on their heads what they have done. It's a terrible thing to to think about, isn't it? Terrifying, almost. Uh, And there will be a time when the Lord will make a decision on our decisions. Uh, For those who've made uh, the wrong decision, uh, Joel says this, the harvest is ripe. Verse 13, swing the sickle, the harvest is ripe, come trample the grapes, the winepress is full, and the vats overflow. But then for the people of God, we have this second promise that I think we have in the second half of Joel. Uh, God promises refuge and not destruction. Reading the verse 16, he says, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the people of Israel. The God who destroys the wicked is at the same time his people's refuge and stronghold. How can that be? How can it be that for some people this will be a terrible day, and yet for we as the people of God this will be uh, a day of refuge? It is because God has deemed that the sword of his wrath should fall on Christ and not on us. At the cross, when the Lord Jesus came, he drank the cup of the Lord's judgment. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded that this cup should be taken from him. Uh, The cup is a symbol throughout the scriptures of God's judgment. At the cross, the Lord Jesus drained that cup, the cup that we should have drunk. He drained it to its very dregs that we might not have to taste it. It's the drink we deserved to have. So these promises could be true that it could be the case that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and need not fear. We have another picture uh, of that in that event that the God's people always looked back to uh, in the Old Testament. So they look back to, of course, the Exodus, which they remember in the Passover. They remember in the Passover feast at uh, that time when they remembered that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I don't know how well you know it. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. But uh, I remind you that uh, God promised at the Exodus, that when the people sprinkled the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of their homes, uh, they would be sheltered from God's judgment as the angel of the Lord passed over the land uh, of Egypt. Uh, because Jesus died on the cross instead of us, that, that, that is a picture of what happened at Calvary. Because the Lord Jesus died on the cross instead of us, because his blood was sprinkled on our behalf, we're sheltered from God's judgment against sin. Uh, God will pass over us. Uh, We can shelter under the cross. We find refuge and not destruction. It's how appropriate, isn't it, that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We remember that so visually, what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Let me encourage you, just as we come to that, that we remember that. We are drinking because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Uh, We shelter under him. I said there were three promises. Let me move on. I'm spending too much time on this. Thirdly, th- finally, and uh, thirdly, uh, the third promise that uh, we're given is that God promises that his people will know abundance uh, and not lack. So you can read at the end, uh, we've uh, got a title, Blessings for God's People, verse 17. Then you will know, says God, that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy, never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water and a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. 
Wonderful picture, isn't it? God dwelling with his people in his holy city. They'll be secure from all harm. Uh, They'll enjoy the fruits of God's new creation. All those who've tried to stand against God and who've uh, abused his people will be uh, finished with. Uh, The Lord will not leave innocent blood uh, unavenged, he says. And of course, it's a picture that, again, finds its fulfilment towards the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the end chapters. We see, don't we, the description of the river of life flowing from the throne of God. Uh, God's people uh, drinking without cost uh, from that river of life. And that picture of God's people as the bride uh, of Christ, dwelling with him forever, secure and holy. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? I wonder what you make of this sort of second half of, uh, of Joel. And there's lots of stuff here that is, is good, isn't it? I, I guess if we took it all together, uh, we might come away with a slightly uh, confused picture of God uh, in some ways. Uh, God's, a picture that Joel gives us of God, I guess, is an awesome picture, isn't it? On one hand, we see God executing his judgment, and yet on the other hand, we see this picture of blessing and it strikes me that if we're to be ready for the day of the Lord, and this is what Joel is really encouraging all of his God's people to be ready for, uh, we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that God is great. There's something far, uh, far above us that we can't, uh, we can't begin to, to picture. There's something glorious. The psalmist says, the Proverbs say, that uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. And I was reminded this week, as I was preparing this, of um, the C.S. Lewis's words in The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe. I don't know how well you know it, but uh, in the line, the witch and the wardrobe, it's a sort of uh, kind of allegory, I suppose, of uh, of, of, Christ, of the Christian life and the Christian message. Uh, and C.S. Lewis depicts uh, Jesus as the the lion Aslan. And there's a wonderful line uh, in it where, uh, where where one of the characters, Mr. Beaver, is talking about lion Aslan the lion. He says this: "Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe." but he's good. God is not a safe God in that sense. He's not someone you can tame. Uh, We can't kind of tame him. We have to. We can't sort of strip out the bits that we don't like. But boy, is he good. He's a good God, isn't he? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's the promise that we have in Joel. Uh, He says the day of the Lord is coming. One day the Lord Jesus will return. Uh, for some, that will be a dreadful day. But for those of us who are the people of God, we can be assured that will be a wonderful day, a day of redemption. The Lord will be a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the people of Israel. Amen. Shall we pray? Well, God, in so many ways, this uh, prophecy seems so remote from us, and yet in other ways, it is uh, so, uh, so real as well. We thank you that your character never changes. Uh, You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And we tremble uh, at your might. We tremble um, at the truth of your judgment. Uh, And we realize that judgment must first begin with us, uh, your people. But we praise you that that promise is true. That even now, uh, you say to us, return with all our hearts. Uh, We thank you that your nature is such that you have made a way for that to be possible. Thank you that Jesus died for us. Thank you that he bore the wrath that we should bear. Thank you that he drained the cup that we should have drunk. 
And we pray now as we approach your table that you would remind us afresh of that wonderful truth, uh, that we can boldly approach you and we can lift our heads to look forward for our redemption is drawing near. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.